Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to The Leadership List, a production of the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity, because great leaders never stop learning. I'm your host, George Maurer. In this edition, a first on the leadership list, a twofer, a pair of co-authors with me today, Taylor Baldwin Keeland and Peter Fretwell, co-authors of a book titled Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, Six Characteristics of High-Performance Teams. And what a fascinating subject. Taylor and Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, George. Thank you. This book takes a look at why the prisoners of war, or POWs, held in the infamous Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War for up to nine years, nine long years, emerged from their ordeal surprisingly healthy, both physically and emotionally. They have one of the lowest rates of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder of any group of combat veterans, a lifetime average of just 4%. And the question this book answers is why? It was Dr. William Sledge who first interviewed the POWs after they were repatriated, after they came home, and discovered they were remarkably free from PTSD when common sense says these men should have come home broken. But for the most part, they did not. You credit the POW culture. Is that correct? Yes, I think it is, George. I, I think that this was an evolving culture that began when there were very few uh, prisoners in the, in the Hanoi Hilton. And over time, it evolved to what we wrote about. Leadership Tip from Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Leadership Guides Through Difficult Times. The first basic concept from Admiral Stockdale is provide virtual leadership. Of course, virtual has a much different meaning than we understand today. In the Hanoi Hilton, the prisoners were kept apart from each other for the most part. Admiral Stockdale's next-door neighbor was Marine Captain Orson Swindle. They spent several years tapping out messages to each other using the tap code, which we'll talk more about in a little while. Several years right next door to each other, and they never met face to face until they were about to be released. Their first face to face conversation, according to your book, went like this. Hi, I'm Jim Stockdale. Who are you, sir? I'm Orson Swindle. Pete, tell me more about the virtual leadership in the Hanoi Hilton. Well, George, this idea of leading virtually, I think, is summarized in our book as creating a culture that is mission-centric rather than leader-centric. James Stockdale quickly realized he was not always going to be available to make senior ranking officer decisions. He was in solitary confinement for about four and a half of the seven and a half years he spent in the Hanoi Hilton. His captors intentionally isolated him to hamper his ability to lead. But he had already outthought them. He made sure his people knew their mission in a clear enough terms that they were able to make good decisions on their own, independent of having anyone above them to consult. Stockdale created a culture of minimal rules, big, broad stroke directives, and very few of them. And then he gave each officer personal latitude to decide how those rules applied 
in the situation that they alone faced in a given moment. Now, that personal empowerment and responsibility, coupled with the demand that you admit your mistakes and move on, created this culture where you knew that you were responsible, that you were valued, that you were needed to help achieve the mission, but you were, above all, accountable to yourself and to the guy in the cell next to you. That created this virtual leadership culture. Nobody was there to tell you what to do. You had to figure it out for yourself or among yourselves using the general rules of the road set down by Stockdale. So when something succeeded, you were expected to pass along the information to the next guy. And when you failed, you were to pass that information along to help the next guy, as well as to prevent self-recrimination from piling up inside yourself. Brilliant. I mean, especially under those circumstances. Taylor, your book credits finding a why in life as the seed of virtual leadership, the key to handling difficult situations such as torture in a POW camp. You referenced work from Dr. Viktor Frankl, who said his time in a Nazi concentration camp helped him lead a more fulfilling life. Explain that to me. Well, Dr. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist and, as you mentioned, a survivor of the Holocaust. He had a lot in common with POWs, having lived in a wartime prison camp for several years. He authored a seminal book called Man's Search for Meaning, in which he articulated how suffering can actually enhance a person's psyche and what it can bring to an ultimately fulfilling and fulfilled life. He described how, and this is a quote, most men in a concentration camp believed that the real opportunities of their life had passed them by. Yet in reality, there was an opportunity and a challenge. One could make a victory of those experiences, turning life into an inner triumph, or ignore the challenge and simply vegetate, as did a number of the prisoners. In his book, Frankel also quoted Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. For the POWs in the Hanoi Hilton in North Vietnam, they found that why. For the POWs, that translated into setting a goal for the organization of POWs. And Jim Stockdale, the men's leader, was responsible for setting that goal and helping all the other men under his watch embrace and internalize this goal. As Stockdale said himself, in Vietnam, the American POW did not suddenly find himself on the war sidelines. Rather, he found himself on one of the major battlefronts, the propaganda battlefront. And that propaganda battlefront was huge during the Vietnam War. Absolutely. So what was that goal that Stockdale set for himself and the rest of his men? He kept it really simple. Return with honor. And what did that mean? It meant returning home from Vietnam however far into the future that date might be, without giving in to the enemy's attempts at psychological indoctrination and betraying fellow POWs or the United States. It meant fighting and winning that critical war of propaganda. In setting this goal and modeling it, Stockdale demonstrated his leadership 
and gave his men a meaningful and productive goal. All of a sudden, they had purpose in prison. Just pure genius as a leader. And when you, when you look at his decisions, I mean, what are your thoughts? I have a hard time sometimes putting myself in Jim Stockdale's shoes. And I often wonder if I had had a similar background, perhaps I could have risen to the occasion. Jim Stockdale, in addition to being a highly experienced fighter pilot and military man, was also an educated man of the Stoics. He got his master's degree at Stanford before the Vietnam War, and he studied in depth the works of Epictetus. Footnote, Stoicism is an ancient Greek philosophy which uses logic to shape personal ethics. Epictetus was a leader in that movement. And one of the things he wrote in one of his books, and he was quite prolific, you can read a lot of what he wrote and spoke about after the war. He said that when he ejected from his plane and was floating down to North Vietnam, he said to himself, I am leaving the Western world and I'm entering the world of Epictetus. And what he meant by that is Epictetus said that when all the trappings of life are stripped bare, that is when you really, really start to put your mind to work and test your inner metal. Leadership Tip from Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Share common values and norms. A viral culture, the second basic concept. According to your book, a viral culture is one that spreads throughout an organization and the sharing of common values and norms. However, the POWs obviously had unique challenges, such as only being able to communicate with their tap code. Again, something we'll talk about here soon. What kind of viral culture did the POWs have in the Hanoi Hilton? Well, George, I'd like to start with something that Taylor said earlier. The key to their viral culture was its simplicity. It was stripped down to the most bare of essentials. Stockdale respected his men as fellow military aviators. They were professionals, and he expected them to be able to figure things out for themselves once they knew the mission. And he knew that they needed something to believe in and something to hope for, as Taylor alluded to. So he gave them the most basic rules of the road, and he gave them a way back in when they failed to live up to those rules. His rules for daily conduct centered on a brutal reality. We are in a very tough spot. The North Vietnamese hold all the cards, and they will break each one of us in a given situation. You will fail, but that does not mean you are a failure. Your failure can become the next man's success if you are willing to work with it. Now, what that looked like during interrogation sessions was this. The rule that he gave them was stick with it as long as you can. Hold out. But when you break, try to mislead your interrogator. If you can't, admit it immediately when you get back in your cell so the next guy into the interrogation room can work with what you told them. If you successfully lure your interrogator into a deception, pass that information along immediately so the next guy into the room knows what he has to work with. Now, if you think about that for a bit, you realize this brilliantly conceived cultural norm, and that's what it is, is just a 
rule of the road for their organization that let you succeed as part of the team, regardless of whether you failed to withstand torture. You had to take full responsibility for your actions. You had to admit what you'd done, but you were recognizing that there are human limits to what you can stand. And while you might not be able to take as much torture as the guy in the next cell, you could help him by admitting that you had given up information, passing along truthful information about your own session, and having him take it from there. Again, just simple, brilliant leadership under the most difficult of circumstances. Absolutely. One person told us that this was the towering intellect, James Stockdale, was the towering intellect of the 20th century Navy. Now, if you know much about naval history and you think of some of the names that you go up against, like Rickover, that's saying a lot. Footnote, Admiral Hyman G. Rickover directed the original development of nuclear propulsion in U.S. Navy vessels. He's known as the father of the nuclear Navy and considered one of the service's most influential officers. Now, talking about the towering intellect of Admiral Stockdale, the foundation of this viral culture as a culture of no excuses, as you just discussed, apparently Admiral Stockdale was big on ancient philosophers, something Taylor has already touched upon. One of his favorites was a Greek philosopher named Epictetus, and one of the lessons the Admiral took from his writings, take responsibility for the things you can control and learn to let go of the things you cannot. You can't continue to torture yourself over the things you just shared with your captors. You have to move on. Successful NFL quarterbacks, and I don't mean to make light of this, but Mm -hmm. that's how they thrive. They have a short memory. Make your mistake, try to learn from it, and then forgive yourself and forget it. Yes. How did this apply to the POW culture? And I know you just you just touched upon it, but please expand upon what you were saying. Well, let's go back to the rule that you need to stick it out in torture and interrogation as long as you can, and then pass along what you did in the privacy of the interrogation room. There are two assumptions built into that rule from James Stockdale. You cannot control whether you're tortured. That's completely out of your control. But you can control how you deal with it. Whether you succeed, whether you fail, you can control what you do with that information. If you think about that, you realize this brilliantly conceived cultural norm held you responsible for your actions while also recognizing your human limits. So you may not be able to take as much torture as the guy in the next cell, but you could help him by passing it along. The organizational goal is not perfection, nor is it to allow you to fail, but it is a blunt recognition that great organizations do fail a lot because they take risks and they must learn from the failure. That's a key thing here is you're going to fail if you're a growing, healthy organization. And the main thing is to learn from that failure. Uh, I think for us, one of the seminal moments in our research came when we sat down with George Coker, who was the junior member of the Alcatraz gang. And he told us, you need to understand this was a bell curve like any other organization. There were those who excelled at resistance, those who followed, that's the middle of the bell curve, and those who lagged behind, that's the tail end of a bell curve. He said, and this is the one that just amazed me, George. He said, There were 11 men at the top of the bell curve. That was the Alcatraz gang. And he said there were 11 men at the bottom of the bell curve. 
And I am sitting in his living room in Virginia Beach, just absolutely dumbfounded. He paused and he said the most profound thing I have heard said by any of the POWs. He said, we got all but two of those bottom 11 onto the bell curve. I'll have to think about whether I want to include this next question and answer in the final podcast, but Mm -hmm. who were the two people you're talking about? Now, it's a historical fact that two of the POWs were out-and-out traitors. They aided the North Vietnamese. They got all but those two onto the curve. Nine other men were leaning that way and acting that way in some cases. But the rest of the POWs pulled them onto the bell curve of resistance against the North Vietnamese. And then they forgave them. That's a great answer, and I think I will indeed include it in the final podcast. Footnote. According to an article in the New York Times published in 1973, shortly after Operation Homecoming, the two officers were Marine Lieutenant Colonel Edison Wainwright Miller and Navy Captain Walter Wilbur. Leadership Tip from Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Enable relationships with an active social network. The third basic concept as created by Admiral Stockdale, enable it all with an active social network. Again, as we discussed earlier, we're not talking about Facebook or Twitter. This was in the 60s and the 70s. It was how the prisoners grew their culture and stayed in touch with one another. Taylor, how important was this social network to the resiliency of the prisoners? It was the absolute lifeblood of the organization of POWs. Separated physically from each other for months or years, years, think about it. Maintaining contact with each other provided the camaraderie and emotional support that they didn't have by being physically together. And it was a way to reinforce the high performance culture that they created. So through the communications methods that they covertly established, this social network they created nurtured this culture with the expectation that each POW would do what he could to help the mission of return with honor and assist his fellow POWs live up to the standards of that mission. Which was really, really hard in a POW camp where deprivation, isolation, and torture were common. I might also add sheer boredom was also very common. Um, Without communications and the fellowship this communications network provided, I assert that these men would not have been so successful in their mission. So how did they communicate when they were physically separated? The most frequent method of communicating was famous tap code. And that was going to be the next issue, my next question. Tell me about the tap code. Well, developed by one of the early captives, Air Force Captain uh, Smitty Harris, that was his nickname, Smitty, um, who had learned it in military survival school before Vietnam. It was a knuckle-tapping language similar to Morse code. So if you imagine a five-by-five matrix on a piece of paper um, where the letter C is used for both C and K, so you have 25 letters. A letter was identified by its location on the matrix, and numbers were assigned to that location. So the first number 
identified the letter's row location, and the second number identified the letter's column location. So for instance, the letter S, as in Sierra, would be for three. Four taps, followed by a quick pause, followed by three taps. You can imagine how long it would take to learn this code, and you can imagine how long it took to teach this code. Oh my God, yeah. And to send individual messages as well. And to try, absolutely. But they became quite adept at it. I'm sure. And they found inventive ways to use it. So if they were in earshot of each other, sometimes they might cough the code. Or if one POW was assigned the task of sweeping out in the patio in front of the complex, they might sweep the code. Sometimes it took days or weeks for a single message to get transmitted all the way around the POW camp. Wow. Now, from our soft little world that we live in, one thing always comes to mind when I hear stories about the tap code. This has got to be the least of their concerns considering everything they dealt with on a daily basis, but they got to be tapping their knuckles bloody. I'm talking to each other day and night. No, actually they didn't. And I think one of the reasons why is because um, the guy who was on the receiving end of the tap code would stick a, his tin cup up against the wall. And so I think he could better hear the tap so they couldn't tap very hard because they were covertly communicating that's that's true the punishment for communicating was severe and the guards were always listening right leadership tip from lessons from the hanoi hilton the mission leads this is one most military folks are very familiar with. Among the Air Force core values, service before self. In the U.S. Army warrior ethos, I will always place the mission first. Admiral Stockdale, Admiral Jeremiah Denton, and Air Force General Robbie Reisner, ranks they would all achieve in future years, established a mission for the POWs. And we've kind of, again, we've touched upon this already, but they were no longer flying jets or serving as ground troops, but their mission was to fight in any way they could on their new battlefront, a POW camp. Taylor, tell me more about this mindset. Sure. So it's interesting because there were many times during Jim Stockdale's long period of incarceration where, you know, even though he was their leader and he was um, indispensable, he was not so sure he was going to make it out alive. And as their leader, he took the brunt of the punishment for his men many, many times. Indeed, he volunteered for it. So he knew that the organization he built as Pete has mentioned, had to be mission-centric, not leader-centric. In other words, the organization had to be capable of surviving without him. So if you'll go with me to a hot summer night in 1967, I have a short anecdote which really, really articulates this concept well. A part of the prison camp um, that the POW sarcastically nicknamed Thunderbird, and that's after the famous Las Vegas Hotel and Casino. Jim Stockdale and Air Force Major Sam Johnson uh, were making repeated attempts to communicate with a group of new shootdowns, and that's what they called the guys who had just been captured. And these new pilots were most likely still recovering 
from their ejection injuries. And as Johnson described it to Pete and me, they were scared and for good reason. We wanted to talk to them and make them know that there were other Americans around. So by this time in 1967, the battle between the North Vietnamese captors and the POWs had reached a really fevered pitch in terms of punishment, torture, and in some cases, death of the POWs. The North Vietnamese know that the POWs are successfully communicating during this period, and they are desperately trying to stop it by making an example of somebody. But the POWs persisted. Johnson told us, he said, you know, Stockdale had a broken leg, which had occurred during his shoot down two years prior. And I had a busted arm and the bunks were about that high. And he held his hand up to his knees. Johnson's a really tall man. So he was the most logical one to get a message out through a very high window um, above the bunk. He said, so Jim would get on the floor and watch for the prison guards, and I'd get up on the concrete bunk and talk to a new guy down the backside out of the window. So this is when they were within earshot of each other. He said, you know, I would tell him essentially how the cow eats the cabbage, which is some strange Texan term for how things worked. (laughs) I'm married to a Texan, but I cannot get used to all these terms. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for the explanation. Go ahead. Yes. So, but that's how Johnson described it. He has a, a very, very strong Texan drawl. So that summer night in 1967, Johnson said that they were finally caught. And he said, I was talking down the back and the guard and an officer came charging down the hall. And Jim was under the door, of course. And he barely got up before the door opened. I got off the bunk and I'm standing there with this bewildered look on my face. And here's this little North Vietnamese guy. Jim hauled off and decked him right in the face, just knocked him down. And Johnson thought, oh my goodness, we are in some deep serious now. And of course they were. The retribution was immediate, very harsh. Johnson was placed in solitary confinement and his captives, uh, captors boarded up the windows and put him in leg stocks for 72 days. But Stockdale got even worse punishment. Now, when I heard this story, Pete and I were sitting in Sam Johnson's Capitol Hill office. He was a U.S. representative from the Fort Worth area for a couple of decades. I was genuinely shocked because... I had studied Stockdale for years, and I thought I knew him really well from his writings and from the few times that I had met him before he died in 2005. And in my understanding of him, punching a camp commander like that was really out of character. I mean, he he was not a man given to anger or impulsiveness. I mean, he was very deliberate. He was intellectual. He was, he was focused. He was a very sober individual. Punching the camp commander just seemed out of character. So I was squinting at Congressman Johnson and I said, sir, why why do you think Stockdale did that? You know, was he caught up in a fit of anger or was there some method to his madness? And Johnson paused a really long time before very slowly and deliberately responding to my question. And he said, frankly, Taylor, I think he was protecting me. And, you know, that's a characteristic of leadership, too. I stared at Congressman Johnson and I got chills because there it was. Of course, 
the rational and deliberate choice that we'd come to expect from Stockdale. He chose to take the brunt of the punishment and retribution. He took responsibility what had happened, for what had happened and what was going to happen. He did it knowingly. He did it willingly. He probably had planned to do it. Long before he got down on that you know, filthy prison cell floor to watch for the guards, he knew what he would do if, and probably he knew when, the moment came that they were caught. And he acted without hesitation. Stockdale couldn't control a whole lot that day, but he could control who received the lion's share of the punishment for communicating with the other prisoners. But here's the most important thing. He chose the mission over his personal well-being that day, bringing the new guys into the fold, telling them the mission, teaching them how to communicate and stay connected with each other, and reassuring them that they are going to be okay, that leadership would protect them. All of that was worth the risk of getting caught. All of this was more important than what happened to him, their leader. What an amazing story. George, there's a postscript to that, too. I believe, Taylor, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was Sam Johnson who told us Stockdale would come out of solitary confinement and he would be disheveled. His head would be down. He would be stooped. There would be glassy look in his eyes. And he said you would despair that your leader, your commander, was like that, and you'd think he had lost it. And he said, and then in the next few days, you'd see his shoulders start coming back. And over a week or two time, you would see his command presence come back. You would see his head come up, his shoulders fully back, erect posture. And then he paused and he said, and then he would turn around and go right back in. The resilience of these prisoners is just remarkable. I mean, Remarkable. I just, I can't say enough about the incredible way they handled this entire situation. Pete, this question is for you. One thing the North Vietnamese captors required of the POWs was to read the New York Times, stories which were negative toward the United States over the camp loudspeakers. Air Force Captain Alan Brudno was one of the prisoners who was required to read those stories. Again, fighting back in creative ways. He fought back in his own creative way by mispronouncing words, much to the amusement of his fellow captors, taking advantage of the Vietnamese guards' limited English skills. For example, whenever the stories mentioned Vietnam leader Ho Chi Minh, Brudno read his name as horse feces men. Of course, he didn't use the word feces, and I'll let you use your imagination to fill in that blank there. But what are some of the other ways the POWs focused on mission to fight back? Well, George, let's take both a macro and a micro view, starting with the micro. One of the POWs, he actually was the only enlisted man in the camp, uh, acted mentally slow, so much so that the camp guards eventually started referring to him as the incredibly stupid one, but he was not. He was not. He was anything but. He had a brilliant memory. But he was able to move about and learn a lot and communicate it back and forth simply because the North Vietnamese guards gave up on him following their rules because they thought he was stupid. Another POW, who was actually a flight officer, acted crazy for the entire time he was in the Hanoi Hilton. He convinced the North Vietnamese that he was just out of his head, muttering to himself and just acting generally insane as he perceived it to look. 
And consequently, he became invisible to them. They ignored him and he roamed freely. And he became one of the most important communications channels for the POW because he was literally invisible to the camp guards. They ignored him and he could do things that others could not as long as he did one thing and that was consistently act crazy. Now at the macro level, I think that it's important to note that in caring for each other and in communicating against all odds and at great risk, as Taylor has alluded to, they defied their captors. They actually proved that communication is a critical key to any high performance organization. As long as it's not pablum communication, they did not risk torture to communicate the latest organizational policy. They used it to protect, to enlighten, to encourage, and to create a sense of solidarity. And that is the major way that they focused on the mission and fought back. Leadership Tip from Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. You are your brother's keeper. These men looked out for each other and they took care of each other, as evidenced by Admiral Stockdale taking the beating for Captain Johnson, I believe his name was, when they were caught communicating. And it was one of the ways they found purpose in their lives in captivity, according to your book. Further proof, I suppose, that when you give of yourself to others, you often get back more than you give. One prime example of being your brother's keeper. The relationship between Air Force Major Fred Cherry and Navy Ensign Porter Halliburton. Major Cherry was a black man who grew up in Virginia, and Ensign Halliburton was a white man from North Carolina. Now keep in mind, both men were from the South during the Jim Crow era. And in your book, you say the North Vietnamese were acutely aware of racial tensions among men from these two groups, and they put them together into one cell, hoping they would be at each other's throats. But Taylor, something quite different happened, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, you're right. Uh, the North Vietnamese had access to all our media, and they knew about the racial tensions erupting in the 1960s and the civil rights movement. So they thought they would be sowing discord amongst the POWs by throwing a black and white POW in the same cell together, two aviators who were strangers to each other. But this strategy backfired. Even though both Fred Cherry and Porter Halliburton had been raised in the Jim Crow South in the 50s, they really had more in common than differences. They were military officers, they were college educated, and they were highly trained military aviators. But even more than those things, their common need for each other transcended any other differences they might have had. Fred Cherry was badly injured and needed a nurse and they both needed the camaraderie of the other to survive and encourage each other. There's a, there's a whole book written about these two and their, um, their friendship. Uh, in a, it's called Two Souls Indivisible, and I highly recommend it. Even though Fred and Porter only shared a prison cell for seven and a half months, which was less than 10% of their overall time in captivity, the experience together in that prison cell created a lifelong bond between these two men. And it was an example 
of what Stockdale insisted all the POWs do for each other. Indeed, when one pilot asked Stockdale, you know, hey, boss, I, I got to have something to hang on to. What do you think I should place as my highest value in here? Stockdale always replied, the guy next door. Protect him. Love him. He is precious. He is your only link with our prison civilization in here. In other words, you are your brother's keeper. And, you know, one other point I wanted to make is that I think it's really interesting that Stockdale used the word love so often in his advice for his men, his fellow POWs. He wasn't afraid to use that term with a bunch of, you know, masculine testosterone laden guys, right? And you know why? It's because he realized that military discipline and the military hierarchy was not going to be enough glue, if you will, to hold all his men together in this austere environment. They also needed to love each other. Sure. Now, you said Major Cherry needed a nurse and Ensign Halliburton served as that nurse. Did Halliburton share that story with you? How did he help Cherry? Fred Cherry was in like a body cast of some sort after he'd had surgery in North Vietnam. And the, the body cast apparently was too tight. And so he really couldn't move around much and he couldn't breathe very well. So Porter Halliburton fed him. He, you know, helped him drink water, got him to the bathroom, probably helped him facilitate his use of the bathroom. When I say the bathroom, you know, there it's just a bucket in the corner of the cell. You know, did everything from wipe sweat off his brow. I mean, did all the functions of a traditional nurse. This is a total stranger. Something perhaps Halliburton's family in North Carolina would have been shocked by at the time. A white man serving and loving a black man in that way. But when it was all over, I imagine both men had a much different life view. And they probably inspired everyone around them as well. I hope so. Can we follow up a little bit on Taylor's comments about love from Admiral Stockdale? Yes. Yes, please. His son told us something about the return of his father to Coronado and to their family home in 1973 that will never leave me. He said he and his father were sitting out on the back porch about two weeks after his father came back from North Vietnam. And they were sipping wine in the evening. Everyone else in the family was already in bed. And his father broke down and cried. And he started talking to him about the family farm that the senior Stockdale had grown up on in Illinois. And he said, there were times when I thought, if I come back in disrepute for what I've chosen to do here in the Hanoi Hilton and how I lead my men, I can take my sons and we can go to the family farm and we can eke out a living. He fully expected in the early days in the Hanoi Hilton that he could be court-martialed for setting aside part of the military rule and, and conduct that Taylor alluded to and replacing it with this ethos of love and caring for your brother. Later on, I think that clearly fell away as he was communicating through this incredible network. He was communicating with the Joint Chiefs of Staff personally and with the Oval Office personally. And they were communicating back through some really, really unique methods, such as sonic booms over Hanoi. So at that point, I think, he, yes, I think at that point, he clearly understood that he wasn't going to be court-martialed. But in the early days, he said, I must get these men home alive with their honor intact. And if that means that I give up my career 
and I have to take my sons back to the family farm in Illinois and eke out a living farming, then so be it. That is what I'll do. Wow. Just to add to Pete's point, what he is specifically referring to early on in their captivity is that Stockdale had a very liberal interpretation of the code of conduct. He instructed his men to withstand interrogation and torture to the best of their ability. But giving up more than name rank, you know, than serial number was permissible according to Stockdale. And and that is because after 48 hours, the intelligence information that these men had was probably inconsequential. Nothing, nothing that they could say in those interrogation sessions was of military value after a few days or a few weeks. And it certainly wasn't worth losing a life. But he was worried that his leniency with regard to the code of conduct would come back to bite him when he came home. Of course, in the end, the exact opposite was true. Pete, now you said Admiral Stockdale was communicating with Pentagon leadership from his cell. How exactly did he manage that? (laughs) You will have to ask somebody with higher rank than myself to get an answer to that. I know that there are traditional ways for prisoners of war to communicate. And uh, there is a method in place I apparently still use today that I don't know. And it was really off the, the topic for our book by which they could do it. We do know that at least one author has written about the use of a spy plane that was sent over uh, Hanoi and it broke the sound barrier twice. And that second sonic boom was some sort of a signal from Washington, D.C. back to Stockdale and the other senior ranking officers about something. That much we know to be true. Uh, And he was clearly communicating back to both the Oval Office and Richard Nixon and to the Joint Chiefs of Staff about things inside the Hanoi Hilton and about some military intelligence that his people were gathering. Footnote, the sonic booms were part of Operation Thunderhead flown by SR-71 reconnaissance aircraft. The operation was an unsuccessful rescue attempt, one of 125 attempted during the war. There is quite a bit of uh, literature about the covert communications that Stockdale and his wife used. They wrote many encoded letters to each other. His wife, Sybil Stockdale, was instructed by naval intelligence, and that is in their book and is in several other books. Um, that, that is widely, widely known. And so some of the communications was through those letters. Wow. That's amazing. The things that went on inside the Hanoi Hilton, such a great story, such a great book. And that, I mean, I, that's all I can say. I just keep saying it over and over, but it's true. Now, Dr. Stephen Hobfall a traumatic stress researcher from Kent State University. His research found five essential elements people need to overcome things like depression, specifically depression resulting from a traumatic event like torture or extended isolation. The Hanoi prisoners understandably would suffer afterwards, physically, emotionally, but they bounced back surprisingly quickly. And your book identifies these five elements from Dr. Hobfall's research as feeling safe, having a positive outlook, being calm, 
having close relationships with others, being your brother's keeper, and the ability to reach goals, such as calling Ho Chi Minh horse feces men while reading the New York Times over the loudspeaker. Now, Pete, during your interviews with the POWs, how we don't have to go through every single one of those five things, but how did they manage to feel safe and calm under such insane circumstances? Well, George, I think safe is a relative term when you're facing torture and you've decided not to avoid it by selling out your fellow POWs. You know that you have made a decision that is going to lead to personal sacrifice. So safe is a relative term. The best they could do was to let the guy in the cell next to them know, I have your back. I love you. I care for you. Uh, William Sledge, who you alluded to early on in this discussion, said that one prisoner in particular actually was a bit depressed about a year out because he missed the camaraderie of the Hanoi Hilton. That tells you something about the, the brotherhood they created. They would sometimes tap out, God bless you, to a man who was going into interrogation. They knew what he was heading into and they supported him. And then they waited for him to come back to hear from him when he returned to his cell, to take his confession, quite literally, on what he had given up during his interrogation and torture, and then to essentially give him forgiveness and acceptance back into the group, in part by letting him know that the info he just shared with them was going to help the next guy going into the interrogation room. It's fascinating that Richard Stratton, one of the senior POWs, was training for the priesthood before he decided to become a fighter pilot. How's that for a career switch? And he actually compared what happened in those cells to what happens in a confessional. Think about this. Two souls separated by a wall, one of them on his knees sharing his failure, and the other on the other side of the wall offering absolution, forgiveness. That's an incredible image of a culture that worked over time to keep its members feeling as safe as they could and that they were in the group and I have your back. Leadership tip from lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Lean, mean, and focused on the mission. Next up, think big and basically your explanation of this in the book there's not a lot of room for the unnecessary stuff in a pow camp when the prisoners demanded some guidelines from admiral stockdale quote give us the list what are we to take torture for unquote the admiral wanted to keep things as simple as possible so he came up with an acronym back us Six letters to stand for six things the prisoners should keep in mind while going about their days to the best of their ability. For example, B stood for don't bow in public. The captors required the POWs to bow to the guards because they wanted to use these bows as propaganda for the outside world. It was especially useful when reporters of the Red Cross had were visiting the camp meaning that these americans were bowing to and accepting communism as a better way something along those lines and we we don't need to go over each letter in the acronym but taylor what value did the prisoners see in back us well the acronym back us 
was essentially the rules of the road for the POWs. It was, it was their daily guide for daily behavior in the Hanoi Hilton. And these rules were broad enough to give the POWs latitude and a sense of individual control. Each person could and, and did interpret them somewhat differently. Individual responsibility and the judgment they had gave them some daily command over how much abuse they took and how they chose to resist. Each of the rules contained two critical elements, cultural expectations and room for personal judgment. Because of the harsh reality of their environment, Stockdale felt that this hands-off approach was, was a necessity. As a result, and Pete has touched on this earlier, personal empowerment became a cultural norm as well as accountability. Uh, you mentioned, uh, George, the example of Alan Brudno reading the New York Times. He felt like he couldn't not read the New York Times, but he made a mockery of the reading. And so that was his way of resisting. Um, there's another example. Pete mentioned Dick Stratton. And he, there's a famous, famous um, story, and it actually was captured on international television, when Dick Stratton was paraded out in front of a group of international reporters, and he was forced to bow in front of the, the press that was assembled for this press conference. And instead of bowing once, he bowed about 10 times. It raised the curiosity of the press. They thought he looked like he was brainwashed because he made a mockery of this, of this command and this order to bow. Um, now, it horrified his, the family members at home, but what it did actually, it backfired on the North Vietnamese because all of a sudden the international press was thinking and saying, wow, these guys aren't being treated well, as the North Vietnamese is alleging. If this guy's being brainwashed, there's some strange stuff going on in there. Leadership tip from Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Choose your battles carefully. The next characteristic, don't piss off the turnkey, <laughs> which is another way of saying choose your battles carefully. During your interview with Navy Lieutenant Charles Zuhaski, he described a turnkey as a guard who brought meals to the POWs, let them out of their cells occasionally, let them empty their toilet buckets, etc., etc. The turnkey was a low-level camp guard. He did not have a lot of authority, but if you pissed him off, he had enough authority to make the prisoners' lives horrible. Pete, uh, what were some of the ways the prisoners carefully chose their battles? Mm. Well, George, their mission was, in three words, return with honor. Get every man home with his honor intact. That had two components, get them home and keep their honor intact. So basically, everything was filtered through, don't do anything that makes it tough for the next guy to return home alive or return home with his honor. And I personally see that as the purest form of choosing your battles carefully. Focus on the end result you want, your mission, and filter every decision you make daily through the question of, does this move us 
closer to accomplishing our mission. There was one POW who insisted they should all try to escape, who never learned that lesson. He quite literally had a different mission. And to this day, you will hear him being critical of other POWs and how they acted, of leadership and how they acted. You will almost never hear the POWs being critical of him because he was doing the best he could do. He was on the bell curve. And he, in some cases, actually did exceptionally well. But in adopting their mission, no, he didn't. And he put them at risk and got at least one POW killed. But most of them learned quickly what put others at risk, what put their mission at risk, and they worked to avoid that behavior. Leadership Tip from Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Create an ethos of optimism. Keeping the faith, again, looking through the lens of a sustainable high-performance culture, creating an ethos of optimism. It goes a long way towards being resilient against difficult situations. And one tool the POWs used to stay positive was humor. An example used in your book was the taped quote unquote confession, and I'm doing air quotes with my fingers, confession of Navy Commander Nels Tanner. Tell me that story. Well, Commander Turner underwent extensive torture and he broke. When he broke, he was forced to sign this confession that you've mentioned. But what he admitted was that Lieutenant Commander Ben Casey and Lieutenant Clark Kent <laughs> had been court-martialed for refusing to fly missions over North Vietnam. For those who may not know, those are actually two fictional characters. <laughs> <laughs> ben Casey was a TV character in a television show about a medical doctor, and Clark Kent, of course, is the comic book superhero who goes into a phone booth and changes into Superman. Superman! <laughs> but the rest of the world knew what the North Vietnamese did not know. And when North Vietnam publicized this confession, they became ridiculed worldwide for the confession. Now, this is not entirely humorous because Tanner then spent 123 days in leg irons. Remember, the Hanoi Hilton was an old French prison and it had leg irons. And he spent 123 days in leg irons for this. But I would stress his confession was also an example of keeping an intense focus on the mission. He knew he was going to break. So I'm going to use humor, yes, but I'm also going to inspire others to resist by using my confession to seriously damage the North Vietnamese's attempt to use us for propaganda purposes and to demoralize us. And he did that in spades. Leadership Tip from Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. The Power of We. The final characteristic. The Power of We. One of the ways the prisoners stuck together was to refuse early release. They had agreed at one point they wanted to be released in the order of capture. And in the end, they did make some concessions for those who desperately needed medical attention, etc., etc. But even with the finish line in sight, after years of captivity, they kept their mission focus until they felt their duty was complete. 
Tell me the story of the Kissinger 20, named, of course, after Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State at the time who negotiated the end of the Vietnam War and ultimately the freedom of the POWs. So this story is kind of a nice bookend to the story I told you about that hot summer night in 1967 when Jim Stockdale punched the guard. So if you now will go with me to the to February of 1973, into the final days of captivity in the Hanoi Hilton. If you recall, the Paris Peace Accords were signed on January 27, 1973, and over the course of the next two months, the POWs were released. It was a staggered release over two months. Um, And you're right. One of the basic tenets of the POW's mission was that the POWs would not accept early release because they were afraid that the Vietnamese could use this tactic for propaganda purposes or to manipulate the POWs. So the POWs were released in the order in which they were captured. Shortly after the first group left, Air Force Major Ed Meckenbeyer and 19 other POWs were moved to another section of the Hanoi Hilton and told they would be flown out the following day. But as they compared notes, they started scratching their heads and they said, you know, we're, we're not the we're not the ones who, sh- who should be released next. Our capture dates are you know, way later than some of our peers here. They were out of order. So they refused to put on their clothes and they refused to leave for five days. It took a U.S. Air Force general to physically come into the camp and order them individually to get their clothes on and leave, which was probably pretty exasperating for the Air Force general. But as it turned out, the backstory is that when Henry Kissinger went to Hanoi after the first round of POWs were sent home, the Vietnamese gave him a list of the next 112 men scheduled to be released. There was a total of 591. They said that as a goodwill gesture, they would release 20 additional people early. So Henry Kissinger didn't really know that he should have circled the next 20 names on the list. Instead, he went down through the list and randomly circled names of 20 men, regardless of their shoot-down date. And (laughs) Meckenbeyer said to me that surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, a number in that list of 20 had German-sounding last names. (laughs) Why in the world would he do that? Well, that's all I know, is that he chose the ones that seemed to have the thing they had in common was not, you know, where they were from or how old they were or how sick they were, but they all seemed to have German sounding last names. So the point Pete and I wanted to make in in mentioning this story is that, you know, if you put yourself in the POW shoes for a moment, you know, you've spent up to seven, eight, almost nine years for in some cases in in prison, in filth, deprivation, isolation, torture. You, you haven't seen your family in years. You you have no idea what's going on in the in the U.S. And your family, your freedom, your future are just hours and steps away. I mean, all you have to do is walk out and accept that ride on the plane back to freedom. The temptation to ignore that final propaganda skirmish and just run for the plane probably pulls at you, and yet. The POWs in this group of 20 men chose instead to stand by their mission despite the temptation. I mean, nobody was there to tell them to do this. Stockdale was already home. He'd gone home with the first group on February 12th. The POWs essentially told the Vietnamese to stick it. 
They told them how and when they would leave, refusing to take the propaganda bait. So even with that finish line in sight, the smell of freedom so tantalizingly close, they were refused to leave their duty posts until they were certain that their mission had been accomplished. Wow. And what did the general say to them when he walked in the prison? They said, what have you guys been doing? It's been five days. <laughs> Makes sense. And Meckenbeyer, Meckenbeyer and, and the group said, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, this, this, these are, this is our mission is to turn with honor. We're not accepting early release. This is not the way it was prescribed to us. The high-performance team in the Hanoi Hilton continued to perform at high levels after leaving the prison. The men there became 16 generals, 6 admirals, 2 U.S. ambassadors, 2 college presidents, 1 presidential candidate, 1 vice presidential candidate, 2 U.S. senators, 2 U.S. representatives, 1 state governor, and a number of state legislators, among other high-profile positions. Of course, Admiral Stockdale would be presented with the Medal of Honor for his actions while in captivity. Taylor Baldwin Keeland and Peter Fretwell, co-authors of Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, Six Characteristics of High Performance Teams. Thank you so much for joining me today and thank you for sharing such wonderful stories. Thank you so much, George. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, George. And again, so many more stories still in the book. I highly recommend you give it a read. And thank you for listening to The Leadership List, a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer, and remember, great leaders never stop learning. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants, Dave Beeson, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott.